Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast, a celebration of the people that make this such a special place. My name's Peggy Hughes and on this week's episode we're celebrating all things post. I'm sure a lot of you out there are just like me, love writing letters, receiving letters, especially at such a time as now when we can't see our loved ones and go very far. One of my favourite things about the Wigtown Book Festival is the people that you meet there, both people you've met before and are happy to see again and people that you meet for the very first time. And a couple of years ago now, I was delighted to make the acquaintance of Elaine and Amy, who live in Massachusetts. And they are wonderful correspondents and letter writers and actually had come to be in Wigtown because Elaine had pursued a pen pal she'd had since she was seven years old. And they told us that story at the festival a couple of years ago and I think that they collected from that several new pen pals of which I am lucky to count myself as one. And so hello to them if they're able to listen to this. Um, And I think that uh, they, particularly being huge fans of the Postal Service, will enjoy the guests that we've got on today. We speak to Mary Wallace, who runs the Wigtown Post Office. We find out a little bit more about what that's like during these current days. We have a chat with Jan Carson from her home in Belfast. Jan is the author of several books, among them Postcard Stories, a collection of micro stories written across the period of a year. And she's been at it again. So we're going to hear all about Jan's postcard stories during lockdown. But first of all, we're going to hear from Alan Johnson former cabinet minister, trades union leader and former postman. He's now the author of several memoirs um, and is working on his forthcoming first novel. So, Alan Johnson, what a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much. What's the view where you are? Oh, it's lovely. The sun's shining, the sky's blue. I'm looking over the fields of North Lincolnshire and it's so good to talk to you. I mean, (laughs) social isolation is probably necessary to finish the thriller that I'm writing and, you know, writers living social isolation really, but, you know, it's really good to talk to another human being every so often, (laughs) make contact, you know. You've just immediately and tantalisingly dropped news of the thriller you're writing. I want to to leave that dangling because we've got this nice little theme of letter writing running through this, the episode. So today, I just thought I'd start, you know, to talk about just the importance of letters and what are, are you receiving any letters at the minute, sending any? What's the situation? Well, of course, email and text has taken over. I, I remember I was still working for the post office when the number of fax messages for the first time exceeded the number of letters sent. So that was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And ever since then, you know, the letter in the sense of someone sitting down to correspond with another human being has been in decline. So I don't get that many, but when I do, it's an absolute thrill. And to get one that's handwritten, which is very rare, but occasionally a reader of one of my books will write to me and it won't be, I mean, when it, that's always lovely, whether it's an email or, or a text or typed. But when it's handwritten, kind of almost means something more, doesn't it? They've, you know, yeah. the, the effort that's gone into the physical effort and the, the contact seems to be more. And I do think you know, letters have been an important part of our history and that writing letters might just make a little bit of a comeback through this dreadful pandemic. I love getting letters and writing them, so I'd love to see that if that if that happened. I mean, you, you touched on how things have changed with faxes. I mean, I don't think people people fax even. Just can you take us back to the sixties in your round? What people have to bear in mind is the revolution. You know, that simple little postage stamp set off. So when I joined in nineteen sixty eight, I joined the 
general post office, the GPO. It was an arm of the civil service. I had to sign the Official Secrets Act. I became a civil servant, as did all of my colleagues, most of whom, two out of three recruits, were, were ex-forces. They would come straight from the army into the post office. And at that time, it's probably very little had changed since Roland Hill invented the penny black, the postage stamp in 1840. So there's been a post office, you know, for 500 years, but it was the preserve of the rich. You paid for the correspondence that the receiver paid, not the sender, and they paid by so much for every sheet of paper. So mm -hmm. when people wrote letters, they would cram as much as they could on one page to keep the cost down. But it was, you know, it was the preserve of the, the landed gentry, really. That invention of the penny black and that idea that you stick a little bit of paper on called a postage stamp, you know, the adhesive postage stamp, was a bigger revolution than the internet has been or even the invention of the telephone because suddenly people could write to each other, you know, young girls who'd gone into service, as was often the case, and were miles away from their family home could write to their parents, their parents could write to them, they could keep in touch, lovers could write to each other to set up dates to meet and because in big cities there were kind of about 10 deliveries a day you could famously you know write to someone at 9am in the morning to meet them at four o'clock in the afternoon oh, wow. and the letters would be exchanged yeah gosh 10 but, deliveries you know, a day imagine what a revolution that was suddenly the number of letters sent yeah. went up from the thousands to the millions yeah. and i was just when i joined in 68 i suppose i saw the post office as it was, I was one of the last people to see it as it was in the sense that everything was done by hand. There were no machines apart from the stamp cancelling machine. You know, you sorted letters by hand. You put them in your sack and off you went on your delivery. It wasn't many packets and parcels. It was letters and lots of pulls coupons because everyone did the pulls in those days. That was the uh, that was the hardest part of the work then. And, and you know, the post office was one of the most respected institutions in the country. People trusted it and they depended on, particularly in rural areas, depended on the post office, both in the sense of going to the sub post office to, you know, cash a check or get your pension out or, or buy stamps or whatever. But they depended on the postman and postwoman who was there, you know, contact with yeah. the outside world. I mean, I think that's one good thing that's um, coming out of this this current situation, the pandemic, that people are respecting the frontline workers. You know, they're really seeing the value that those people, that it is necessary work. Yes. Yeah, I do it's... wonder, though, whether, you know, it's time for the post, well, raw mail as it is now, it's, you know, privatised and separated away from the counters network. So there's been a lot of things that I would describe as being regressive. But you know, they might want to think about going back to the days when I was a postman, mm -hmm. we used to deliver prescriptions. Mm. So somebody wanted a prescription delivered, you know, they were elderly, it was impossible for them to get to the chemist. The, particularly in rural areas, it was delivered by the post office. And we delivered, it was called Articles for the Blind, so Braille books that were very heavy. And they disappeared with new technology. But that social bit of the post office, that public service part, we could do with now because there's lots of vehicles trundling around rural areas, including mine, just duplicating what they're doing. But that post office link for prescriptions and things like that, I don't think they do it anymore. But in this mm. pandemic, that would be another yeah. added value to the delivery.
Yeah, no, so you, you write really, really beautifully about that in the memoir, just about the kind of almost postman pat nature of the role, kind of feeding dogs and visiting old people and just different different days, I guess. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if that still goes on. All of that was against regulations, you know. Oh. It was against, against regulations <laughs> to have a cat in your van, so postman pat might have got in trouble with, oh, his, with his black and white cat. <laughs> but, you know, I delivered, uh, we delivered the newspapers around this rural area called Littleworth Common in Buckinghamshire, and there's no way people would have got their newspapers delivered if we didn't bring them but that was entirely you know something we'd sorted out with our customers and the news agents the post office knew nothing about it and it probably completely breached their rules but it was done for well a good 10 years before i took on that round and 10 years after no knuckles wrapped when the when you broke the news in the memoir no uh you know, angry. No, <laughs> no, no they didn't aware. try and discipline me retrospectively. No, oh, a, no, and you know, I think actually the post office is sensible enough to realise that they gain great public value out of that for their brand. I mean, no other organisation passes every single dress in the country, all 27 million of them, at least six days a week. Obviously, you're going to take advantage of that when people want their postman to deliver a sack of coal or give someone a lift in the back. That was quite. <laughs> Sure. That was that was quite uh, often that happened as well. Yeah, I'm gonna segue here, Alan, into asking you a little bit more about your memoir about music. You know, you've said that books and music and football were your were your three loves. That must have been fab just to get to spend time with that passion for music in in writing that book. I really enjoyed it. it was my agent's idea. I was keen to get onto this uh, thriller. I was keen to get onto fiction because basically I was sick of writing about myself. You know, I'd done <laughs> I'd done the three memoirs, so that had covered postman to cabinet minister and that's where I wanted to leave it but the more my agent talked about this a lovely woman called Claire Alexander she said look you've mentioned music but you've not described in any detail what it was like to play in those bands in the 60s and she also said you know there's this great social history about how we listen to music you know when I was a kid my generation baby boomer generation, if you like, were there at the birth of rock and roll. But we couldn't hear very much of it because all you had was the BBC. There was nothing else unless you could tune into Radio Luxembourg, which was a trial in itself, you know, through all the interference and all of that. If you could get 208 on the medium wave in the evenings, you that was your one link into commercial broadcasting. For the rest, you relied on the good old beat. There was the light program, the home service and the third program. And if you like classical music, I wasn't particularly brought up that way, though I've grown to like classical music. Well, you had a whole station, the third program. If you wanted to hear pop records, you had to rely on, you know, Housewife's Choice or two-way family favourites, which is why in the end... You know, 14 million kids were listening to pirate radio stations and the government had to react and the BBC had to change. And along came Radio One in 1967. But all through the 50s and most of the 60s, the BBC just you just couldn't hear the records you wanted to hear. So we've gone from famine now to, to feast, you know. Mm. Uh, which is amazing. So the more Claire talked about that, the more interesting it got for me to do this in in my life. Because what you know, it's, it's sort of it's thirty years basically from my earliest music memory to the time I realised I wasn't going to be a rock and roll star or a songwriter, <laughs> and went off to do other things. When did that discovery uh, befall you that you weren't going to be a rock and roll star? Well, the years were going by. <laughs> At that time, it was a young person's game. Now, because we've all grown up with rock and roll, you've got, you know, the Stones touring in their mid-70s. You've got Paul McCartney, you know, at that great age. But back in the 60s, you were finished sort of when you were 23, you were becoming an old stager. And I'd, I'd not 
you know, I joined the post office really as a temporary measure before I went back to music. I needed to earn some money. I was stacking shelves in Tesco. So I left school mm-hmm. at 15, was in those bands. And then when I was 18, I got married and thought, I've got to have something reliable, you know, and mm-hmm. stacking shelves didn't, didn't appeal to me anymore. So that's when I joined. But what really ended it, as I mentioned in the book, is I still thought I might make it as a songwriter into my early 30s and sent off 10 of my songs, which recorded on a compact audio cassette, which had just come out, just with an acoustic guitar, and sent the tape off to Elvis Costello. I got his address off the back of an album called Imperial Bedroom and sent it off to him. And that was in 1982. And as I say in the book, I'm still waiting for a reply so that's oh, when that's when I thought it's not going to happen but you've obviously you know you've you've taken that love of writing and 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 here here we are today so just, this is us coming to our close really but of this thriller tell us what can we expect well i hope you can expect to be entertained i mean it is a thriller uh there are russians involved it's <laughs> it's an idea that occurred to me a couple of years ago before actually Salisbury happened you know the terrible events there uh, Litvinenko the guy who was uh, poisoned in London had happened and that's what kind of gave me the idea of a waitress serving up coffee one of the cups is poisoned and she mixes them up and gives the poisoned one to the poisoner rather than the victim and what could come out of that and what's come out of it so far is about 40,000 words so I've still got another 30,000 to do for publication next year oh wonderful working title is Mascara Peggy so great well I hope that I'll come to Wigton to fabulous um, fabulous wonderful Uh, it's the Glastonbury of book festivals (laughs) in in Scotland that's superb I don't (laughs) disagree with you on that Ellen What an absolute pleasure to speak with Alan Johnson. Alan is the author of a quadrilogy of memoirs, This Boy, The Long and Winding Road, In My Life, and for the purposes of our postal theme, perhaps we would direct you first to the second volume entitled Please, Mr. Postman. Continuing on our postal theme, we would have been absolutely remiss not to speak to our next guest, who is the most important person when it comes to post and Wigtown. That is Mary Wallace, who runs the Wigtown Post Office. On Friday Bank Holiday, we had a chat with Mary from her home uh, about what it's like at the moment working in this vital community hub. Hello. Hello, Mary, it's Peggy. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I have a day off this bank holiday, so that's extremely welcome. So tell us a wee bit about when you started, Mary, because I think some of us will remember that with the fellow who was there before, but I guess, have you been there for the last few months? Yes, so I took over in October. There were staff as well here, so that was great. You know, I was able to learn the ropes quite quickly mm-hmm. got a little bit of training from the post office but of course once the pandemic hit i furloughed the staff so then it was just me <laughs> and are you is your background in in working in the post so i'm a nurse i've nursed for 30 years now i came back from australia last mm-hmm. year and um, it was a really good way to come home you know so i was born on a farm just outside kirkinner I bet Wigtown has changed quite a bit since, I guess, if you're away for 30 years, it's had a, had quite a facelift, I suppose. Absolutely. It was quite sad to see, you know, everything becoming closed over those years. Once the Bicktown happened, gee, what a difference it made. Have you been to the festival yourself? Yeah, just last year for the first time. 
and it was wonderful. What were your festival highlights? So funny you should mention Alan Johnson. So oh. I really enjoyed listening to him. Yeah, oh, very, very good. So tell us a wee bit, if you would, Mary, about the post office then, where it is in the town and just it's quite a community hub, isn't it? Yes, so the post office is in the centre of the town, just by the Market Cross. Everyone goes past the door and you can see exactly what's happening in town from there. We we love the position it's in, actually. In the last six months, we've made quite a few changes. Hopefully more still to come. We're going to have a bit of a makeover soon, I hope. I personally have posted a big blanket from the market to my mother from that post office. Is there any, I guess you you can't always be aware, but is there anything especially strange that people have been posting in lockdown, would you say? So there's been a lot of food parcels, lots of care packages, so lots yeah. and lots of care going out to the post office. Gosh, that's lovely though to, to people, be. Yeah, looking after family and friends and people who are actually sick. You know, yeah, sending yeah. them parcels. That's Lots that, of yeah. cards and letters. Mm-hmm. We've seen a big increase in that. Because obviously people aren't meeting face to face, you know. So mm-hmm. a lot, really a lot more local mail. People mm-hmm. sending mail to Kirkinner, Newton Stewart, mm-hmm. Garliston. How nice. I mean, I hope I, I hope that continues after all this. I love getting mail. Are you a letter writer yourself? Yes, I do love to write letters. And when I was in Western Australia, I actually spent a few months on a remote sheep station caring for an older lady and um, Mm. I wrote a lot of letters there because it was the only way to communicate. It's nice to look back. Some of my friends have shown me the letters. It's, It's like a little journal of my time up there. Thank you to Mary for chatting to us on her day off during what has been just an exceptionally busy time for the post office. Humans of Dumfries and Galloway recently nominated Mary as someone who is thoughtful, considerate and always willing to go the extra mile in keeping people connected. So it was a real pleasure to get to hear a little bit more about life inside the post office. And finally, we chat to writer Jan Carson from her home in Belfast. Jan Carson is a serial writer and sender of postcard stories, some of which have been collected in the 2016 collection Postcard Stories, and some of which are about to come out in a brand new collection later this summer. When Jan's not sending stories on postcards to people, she's also busying herself writing several other brilliant books, including most recently the prize-winning The Firestarters. Jan Carson, it's always a pleasure to get to chat to you. Where are you? Describe your, your view. I am in a terraced house in East Belfast. So my view from the front window is one of those kind of slightly incongruous 70s palm trees that the Northern Irish go for in a big way. Unfortunately, there's no view out the back window because my house opens directly onto the bin alley. Tell me this, how is this whole scenario treating you? What What's it been like for you there in East Belfast? Um, I guess in some ways it's not terribly different from my normal everyday existence. I live by myself and I spend a lot of time writing by myself. I think that the big thing for me is the element of choice. So to, to choose to go and be in a lovely writer's residency in the country by yourself for a month is very different from being stuck in your house. And I, I had always thought I was quite an introvert. I did okay for about the first four weeks and then I just suddenly realised I wasn't as big an introvert as I thought I was. I'm kind of dying for a wee bit of face-to-face interaction and definitely dying for a cup of coffee that I didn't make myself at this stage. Sinead Gleeson, when um, we, we, I know you and I were involved in, in the Courage Festival, which we've discussed on the podcast actually here before, but she said uh, something really interesting about that kind of the quiet that lockdown has 
created, which I think is just a sort of lovely idea. And what's going to emerge from that quiet for people is yeah. going to be really, really interesting. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of, you know, there's the quiet that makes you more introspective, which that is definitely happening to all of us, sort of beginning to psychoanalyze yourself. But there's also the quiet that makes us more attentive to what's around us. And I've become particularly aware of my neighbours on other si- either side of the wall. When you live in a 1960s terrace, there's not a lot of distance between the people on either side. And in a sense, we're very private, but we're also quite public. Like I can hear the dogs next door and the man putting the kettle on on the other side in some ways it's making me just pay attention to that and I find that I'm writing much more realist stories at the minute and stories that are very focused on those tiny incidental details that I probably would have slid it over before. You made it sound there somehow like Hitchcockian or like Shirley Jackson somehow oh I'm much more aware of the people next door. (laughs) I wrote this really creepy short story last week about a girl who's in her house and she discovers what accidentally watching a documentary on iPlayer that a murder actually happened in the house that she's living in and now I can't leave because she's in lockdown. And it's all about this psychology with the neighbours on either side who haven't told her that this happened in the house that she's just moved into. And I uh, mean, that would put the heart over you. <laughs> is, is this a wise move? <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but for about the, the three weeks I was working on it, I was definitely distrusting the neighbours on either side a bit more than usual. Listen, Jan, I know another thing that you've been up to in lockdown, I've, I've spied from your social media, is you've been writing a lot of postcards. So I've been writing postcard stories for years now. Um, I did a quick count a while ago. I think I'm up to nearly a thousand at this stage. 2015, I had to dreadful, dreadful writer's block after my second book. Um, I set myself a wee challenge to kickstart the old imagination by writing a short story on a postcard every day for a year and sending them to friends. Seemed like a good idea at the time. By the end of January, I was cursing myself, but I followed through and I did it. And the Emma Press actually published a gorgeous illustrated collection of those in 2017. The, the dreadful thing about doing something like that is people then come to expect nice postcards every time you go on holidays, not the sort of wish you were here kind of version. So I've continued to write those postcard stories when I travel and I guess when the, the COVID-19 thing began, I have been doing a lot of work, community practice with older people. And it's been very, very difficult to keep in touch with them. Technology is difficult for the kind of older people I've been working with are in their you know, late 70s, 80s even. They're not Skype proficient or you know, finding so amazing. And so I started writing postcard stories to them just as a kind of, hey, I'm here and I'm thinking about you. And it kind of blossomed from there. And I'm now taking nominations from people just to write to, you know, their daddy who's isolated by himself or an elderly aunt who's in a nursing home, um, mostly older, isolated people. And I have corralled some children into illustrating them for me. So last count there, I hit number 50 today. And I've got about 100 kids from all over the world who are providing really beautiful illustrations for the stories. Jan, it strikes me this is this is effectively a frontline service. It feels like to me it's so important. You know, can you say say more about what sort of post means to you? Have you always been a letter writer? Um, yeah, I guess I've always had pen pals. I had a, a pen pal when I was younger from Portsmouth, of all places, which seemed hideously exotic whenever you grew up in Ballerina in the 80s. Um, and then I had a German pen pal for a while. We're supposed to be practicing our German 
but all we did was really swap football results. And then I lived in the States for nearly four years. Post became quite a big thing for keeping in touch with home when I was out there. My parents hadn't really got round to understanding the internet at that stage. It was, you know, 15 years ago. And so daddy would write out a handwritten letter and then type it in as an email. So all the emails from them came in, in the format of a letter. I just, I like letters. I like the kind of tangible object nature of them that they, you know, I'm looking here to my right, to my letter rack, and it's stuffed with actual physical examples of my friend's handwriting. I write regularly to the poet Sinead Morrissey in Newcastle. So we've been communicating for the last few years since she left Belfast um, in handwritten letters. And I, I'm really glad that if something happened to us, there's an archive of all of the ideas and things we sent across the pond. I'm just fascinated by what will happen to actual archives. Absolutely. And I've, I've always been fascinated by the idea of curating things. And I think there is a inherent thing in our nature that wants to curate. If you look even at something like a Facebook page, how people personally curate, you know, these are photos that are important to me. These are thoughts that are important to me, things I've read, things I've seen. It's natural to us to want to collect and curate. But what happens if what we curate actually just fizzles away eventually? I real struggles with things like reading on ebooks and kindles because I like the physical object of a book. It's a funny kind of tension though because I think a lot of us are you know working from home or you know and, and we're, we're dependent at the minute on technology and zooming yeah. all over the place and yet the analogue object has never felt so precious. Absolutely. The, the lovely thing about sending mail is that people respond and send you things back and this morning what arrived was a bunch of postcards to write on and three little books of, of second class stamps and it made me cry because Ugh. it's from my pal Mary, who just lives across Belfast, but she just thought, oh, this would be a really nice thing to do. You know, for me at the minute, precious objects are usually things like getting to go to a bookstore and buy a book or buy a new top or something. Stamps are really precious to me at the minute because they're what I'm using the most and what I'm spending my money on. You know, objects are taking on different significance. Receiving posts, it's a way of, of someone saying, I'm thinking of you and wanted to bring a wee bit of cheer. I want to ask you, Jan, about the, the actual stories themselves. That is an in incredible number. What's the starting gun for these stories? I think it comes back to that thing I talked about earlier about paying attention to what's around you. The only caveat I've always had with postcard stories right from the start is that they need to be inspired by something that, you know, happened, was seen or overheard on the day they were written. And that to me has been a kind of writerly tool to provoke imagination. I teach kids a lot and I talk to them about, you know, your imagination being a muscle and it gets rusty if it's not worked and, you know, exercised regularly. That idea of trying to look for the tiny, small nugget of a story every single day. It really keeps you on top form. Where can people read these stories? Best place is um, I've set up a little Instagram site and it's just very simply called Jan's Postcard Stories. Um, and there's a, a message in set up there where you can send me a message to nominate someone to receive a postcard story. You can volunteer your children. I don't take actual physical children. I just want them to colour for me. No posting your children um, to Jan, no. please. And you can also read it. I post one every single morning with the artwork that goes along with it.
Am I right in thinking there's another collection coming from the Emma Press as well? Yes, there is. Um, Yeah, we are planning to to, um, release Postcard Stories Volume 2 in July. It's a lovely collection and I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do some online readings and perhaps a wee online launch for it as well that folks can come along to. Absolutely lovely. Jen, tell us this, what else are you um, working on? Your last novel saw Belfast ablaze, the Firestarters, which was wonderful and which some people from Wigtown may well have attended your event at the festival there last year. I've been doing a couple of different things. I've got another novel coming out um, with Doubleday in April of next year. So it's written, edited and just waiting on final graphics and layout and things at the minute. Um, it has a working title of No Promised Land, which I quite like and I'm hoping to get past the, the editor very soon. And it's set in rural Northern Ireland in um, 1993. So just as the pace process is kind of looming on the horizon, but not quite there, it's magic realist and it's about a group of young people in a primary school there's a tragedy happens in the primary school completely unrelated to the troubles but it really is about how rural communities cope with death and injury and all of the kind of trauma that goes with that so it's a bit like the fire starters it's dark and comic in places and hopefully a snapshot of northern ireland you might not have seen before Jan, we could just keep chatting away, I know, but I must let you go and we must come to an end. But I wonder if before we do that, would you have any, a wee postcard story to hand there that you would oh. read for us just to finish? Would that be Let's possible? See. These are some postcard stories that are going to go into the, the new collection. And um, the, both of these were written whilst I was travelling. And um, this one was written in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. in 2016. And it's for Emily O'Neill. Gallery notes for wall-mounted photography installation. The Japanese photographer Naoko Wazugi arrived in Kansas City with only one word of English, yes, which was at least a positive place to begin. Over the years, dozens of individual friends and colleagues taught her how to speak American, one tight word at a time. Here is a photograph of 11 of these people caught in the act of speaking their special word. Bureaucracy. Welcome, fabulous, gynecologist. Seemingly, each of these words, when spoken as an act of kindness, is a form of smiling. You can see this in their eyes and in the way they are leaning forwards towards Naoko and her camera, waiting for her to reply. Um, This one is probably going to be my favourite one in this next collection because I really hate Jane Austen and love Emily Bronte. (laughs) Oh, you threw that in right at the end, Jan Carson. That's a whole other conversation. We can come back to that later. But this one was written in Bath and it's, it was to my friend Andy. It is impossible not to imagine Jane Austen at ease in the city, walking and folding her hands and gloves. The squares are square and bordered on all four sides by privet hedges and black spike ironwork. The buildings are the bleached blonde colour of old sand, and everywhere the ivy climbs neatly, never once taking its ascendancy for granted. Even the cobblestones are correctly angled. This is a place for moderation and discreet romance. Small intrigues might be permitted in their proper place, but even these would be tight as a well-laid table or a slip of Sunday afternoon needlework. This is the kind of city which is always clean and inclined to resolve itself in the time necessary to drain a china teacup and refill. 
In other words, Bath is two square miles of sense and sensibility, the kind of place which made those Brontes howl. How lovely to end on some stories. Thank you so much to Jan Carson for that. Thank you too, of course, to Mary Wallace for chatting to us and also just for keeping everyone so connected at this particular moment in time. And thank you to Alan Johnson for sharing a bit more of his insight into being a postman. Before we leave you today, we've got some really exciting news from Wigtown HQ. Recognising that this digital business isn't the only method of communication, of course, as we've been exploring and celebrating today, and it's also not always the most magical, let's face it. Um, We'll be inviting members of the Wigtown community, including people in town, writers, and members of the Wigtown audience, to sign up to write and receive a letter, and perhaps to start an occasional enduring pen friendship. So if that floats your boat... Do keep a little eye on the Wigtown Book Festival website at wigtownbookfestival.com for more info. So that's all from us for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We look forward to being back with you again next week. Thank you to Bailey Gifford, whose generous support has made this podcast possible. Take care for now. Bye bye. <laughs>